and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Where are the docs? I don't know where the docs are. That will be increasingly relevant later. First, I want to introduce our panelists today. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everyone. Alyssa Wright. Everyone. Justin Dorfman. Hello, everyone. Me. Hi, everyone. And our guest today is Eric Holscher. Hello. Eric is the lead and I believe founder of Read the Docs. He's calling today from his home in Bend, Oregon. Eric, how are you doing today? Doing all right. Can't complain too much. It's a beautiful sunny day here. And, you know, it feels like the world is slowly getting vaguely better. So, you know, it's as good as things can be going in 2020. Tell me about it. I do feel over the past five, 10 years, I mean, Read the Docs has really changed a lot in terms of documentation standards across the web. And when I think about people actually writing readmes and thinking about them, consistently I come back to your project or the project you started. It's a much wider community now, and it's not just you anymore, which is great. Can you talk to us a bit about the history of that? Sure. Yeah. So I like to say I'm a co-founder. I worry about writing people out of history and I always try to, you know, no one works alone. And so I always try and use the word co-founder and kind of that's very notable because there's kind of multiple, you know, people who wear the founder hat throughout history. But originally we were actually a, a Django Dash project. So we were created in like 48 hours back in 2010 in a, a hackathon, basically. And that was pretty much just the idea of taking a webhook from GitHub and auto-generating and hosting documentation. So we were kind of in the world where we had all these fancy tools, but the kind of state of the art was still like, you know, upload a zip of HTML somewhere on the internet and someone will host it for you. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was kind of the, the origin and the history of it. Uh, and then it just kind of slowly grew over time. And kind of back in 2015, we created kind of a company around it, turning it kind of from a project into a company. And so then for the past five years, we've been doing it as a full-time job because it was getting so big that was kind of required. So... That's the abridged version, anyway, of the history. Love it. Thank you. The introduction. One of the things I'm curious about is how did you turn it into a company? Who funds Read the Dogs? Uh, so we're pretty much all bootstrapped. Mainly the idea there was just to kind of have a point in time where we started thinking about working on it full time. So we actually did do an accelerator based out of Portland, where my kind of secondary co-founder of the business, Anthony Johnson, and I we're living. And so they do own a small amount of equity, I think like 6%. And they gave us basically office space for a year and kind of the, the structure needed to, and I think it was like $25,000 at the time, but they basically it was more just like the point in time to like focus and like social pressure to create something. Cause I'd always been talking about turning it into something more for a long time, but we kind of needed the, like the focal point, if you will. Love that. So I know there's another project called Write the Docs. I've never fully grokked what the difference is. Can you tell me about that? So Write the Docs is a global community of people who care about documentation. So they are similarly named, but actually they're separate legal entities. And they're basically just connected through me. Uh, so the Write the Docs team and the Read the Docs team are, are totally different sets of humans. All awesome. Uh, but we do conferences and meetups around the world. So you can think about Write the Docs much more like the Python community or the Ruby community where instead of a PyCon or a RubyConf, you have Write the Docs Portland, Write the Docs Prague, Write the Docs Australia. We have these kind of global gatherings of people 
but it's more of a kind of an industry-wide kind of thing, not a tool-specific. And so that's pretty unique, I think. So you can think of it a little bit like Sustain, where it's much more of kind of an industry gathering more than something built around a specific technology. I went to a Writes the Doc in Pasadena at JPL. Write the Docs LA. And I don't know, how did you deal with it this year? I haven't gone to any meetups this year. How have they been doing everything? So actually, yeah, just last night we wrapped up our Australia plus India event, which was actually a cool collaboration kind of enabled by, you might guess, you know, being a remote event this year. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So we switched everything online and we're pretty successful. We used a tool called Hopin, which some of you are probably familiar with if you've done many online events at this stage. But yeah, so we've done all three conferences this year virtually. Similarly, a lot of meetups are, you know, just using Zoom or Google Meet or whatever. Hopin's a little maybe overblown for a meetup. But yeah, so I think a lot of people have been, you know, translating a lot of the value online. You know, I kind of have, you know, mixed results, but I do think it was a really cool collaboration with our Australian and our Indian communities kind of being able to like gather together in a similar time zone. (laughs) And, you know, that's something that's much almost, I mean, it's impossible literally to do in a physical event. (laughs) So yeah, I think that there are some really neat opportunities and especially around inclusivity and just kind of being able to expand the set of speakers and the set of, you know, attendees that you can get to these events, you can offer them much lower cost. And then you can also get much more diverse attendance and uh, speakers just because there are much lower barriers to entry, I guess I'd say. Yeah, true. That's fascinating. I really love that. And I like how Red the Doc is everywhere. I think I attended one in Montreal and it was super fun to just have different people in a room talking about documentation. And that was great. So one of the things you're known for besides read the docs and write the docs is ethical advertising. So you run a thing called ethical ads, which I think started from having ads in readme's. Can, can you tell us how that began? So it actually, yeah. So this kind of was started when we wanted to do ads on read the docs. We had this kind of, I mean, we were a pretty large website at that point and we had no monetization strategy. And as everyone in probably in the audience knows, you know, trying to get open source maintainers to pay you money. That's not who we want to charge money. They're the ones doing all the work and not getting any money. Trying to charge them is just kind of a non-starter. So really, we wanted to charge the audience. The people that are reading documentation are the ones that are getting value from this work product. And similarly, from our hosting and building and kind of the service we're providing. And so we kind of looked at advertising as the way to kind of solve that problem, right? It's a micropayment of attention, if you will, rather than a, a micropayment of money, because no one's figured out how to do that successfully. (laughs) And so, yeah, we were like, we want everyone who reads and gets value from this to pay a little bit and advertising is the way to do it. Our audience is very privacy focused and technically literate, and they kind of understand the problems with advertising. (laughs) And I also want to note, you know, Eric and Justin obviously can speak to this pretty strongly as well. (laughs) But yeah, that was kind of the, the vision there was we wanted advertising, we wanted to monetize, but we didn't want to be creepy and we wanted to do it. You know, I think the The best way to think about it is like, if the developers in the open source world aren't the ones who are going to like rally back against the invasive tracking in in that kind of business model, no one else is going to do it, right? If we're not (laughs) like, if we're not the ones leading the way there, we understand the problem, we understand the solutions, we have the technical skills. I think we really have to practice what we preach. So that was kind of the origin of doing it that way. But then there's a a much longer story that maybe I can let Eric or uh, Justin fill in from there. I'm actually more interested in your story. So first off, thanks for being on the show. I'm not only a huge 
fan of yours per se, but also you've been one of my heroes for a very long time. You've really paved the way for open source funding in a unique and powerful and scalable way. I guess, what was the reaction when you introduced ads on the platform way back when? It seems like it's probably an easier sell nowadays than it was back then. Yeah, and I think that was one of the big worries we had, right? I think we were very, very kind of apprehensive and didn't want to have this kind of, you know, community kind of outrage or, you know, like people have kind of put trust in us. They've invested time in using the tool and it could feel like a bait and switch if you were like, we're just going to like turn monetization up to 11 (laughs) as some other businesses have done over time. And so, yeah, I think historically and even today, you know, we append ads to the sidebar all the way at the bottom, even if it's out of the viewport and to the bottom of the page content. That is any ad on Read the Docs you'll ever see, unless a theme author has given an explicit placement, that's where ads will always show up. So we, we're very cognizant of, you know, we're not putting them at the top of the page. We're not putting them in your face. So yeah, I think we've always been very hesitant to kind of overstep our bounds. <laughs> and honestly, we, I think because of the ethical advertising approach that we took, we got much more positive feedback than negative when we launched it. And to this day, People are always, you know, we get five to one probably emails that are like, we love this approach. Thank you so much. We're really happy. This is what you're doing versus the like, why are there ads on my docs? This is terrible. (laughs) And that was really the goal is we wanted to kind of stop that reaction from happening. So we designed the the system and the program and the, the kind of mission to stop people from being upset because we also don't want all those things either. (laughs) You know, we don't want super, you know, three ads on a docs page that we're reading and you know, we don't want everyone tracking us around the internet. So I think we were very aligned. So you've created the document, which I think you may have coined ethical advertising, definitely in the context of funding open source. But how did you come up with the rules around that? And can you kind of explain what those are? I know them really well because I basically took your idea and expanded it a little bit more into with CodeFund, but I'd love to hear what are those rules that you've applied? What is ethical advertising? And yeah, if if you don't mind digging into that. I think the big tenets, I mean, one is definitely tracking. Uh, So we host everything. A lot of the kind of ad networks that do, you know, look similarly, uh, still allow third-party JavaScript and third-party image hosting. So maybe the advertiser can host the image. And so every ad display, they're still able to kind of get your IP address. They're still able to track you. They're still able to get you know, your browser user agent. I mean, there's enough to kind of fingerprint a users by loading an image. And so, yeah, no tracking. So, you know, read the docs and ethical ads, we host everything. So nothing that comes from an advertiser is served by them. So that's one big part of it. There's no Google analytics. There's no anything else. The other big part of it is kind of just like, that's kind of embodied in the acceptable ad standards. You know, the ad shouldn't be in the middle of the content. The ad should be you know, they should respect the user. They shouldn't get in the way. They shouldn't be flashing. You know, it should just be like an image and some text. (laughs) And then I think one of the other big ones that we've kind of added a little bit later, but I think is important is that ethical advertising is how we should make all our money. And so we're not selling data because even though we do, we don't, you know, allow third-party tracking, there's still all sorts of business practices that terrible things can come from (laughs) first-party data as well. And so, you know, as an ad network, we're still also not building a profile of users and all this kind of other stuff, and we're not selling that data. And so, I mean, I think those are the big tenants. You know, it's really just tracking and respect, I think, is the, the shorthand that I would put around it. I wanted to extend on that question and 
ask, it almost sounds like the terminology of ethical advertising means that there's an unethical advertising and what is unethical advertising? Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, ethical advertising is kind of a, a nod to the, the prevailing way the industry works. And I think this was really well said by a few other people that I'd like to reference. One, which is Mache, who does Pinboard. I'm forgetting exactly the blog post where he touched on this, or he did, I think it was a talk write-up, but he kind of went through the whole kind of like the history of like tracking users and selling user data. Like a lot of these are you know, the location data of a weather app ends up getting sold to someone and then they are using it to like figure out who you are. And there's just all these, you know, I mean, Google and Facebook being the most prominent examples, but it's this whole kind of ecosystem of tracking that has all sorts of negative externalities, both within advertising, but just as in the world as a whole, you know, there's just lots and lots of data around people's location and spending and all this other stuff. And so I think you know, the other one that we've kind of been referencing a lot uh, is Doc Searles, Searles, yeah, another name I can't pronounce, <laughs> but he's the editor-in-chief of Linux Journal. And one of the things that he said is advertising without tracking has created nearly every worldwide brand you can name. And when I kind of first thought about this, I really thought about newspaper advertising. And that's really what we're building here, right? For hundreds of years, <laughs> that's been enough for anyone, right? You just you know what content people are reading and you target them based on their interests. And that's what we do with ethical ads. You know, we want to sell Nikes. So let's put it in the sports section of the newspaper. And that's probably a pretty good solution to selling people that like sports. Similarly, if you're selling a Python API product, you can put it on documentation that's Python. (laughs) And that's, we find that's pretty much enough for just about anything anyone wants to do. And so that's where we've settled is, you know, we're just continuing this era of advertising that was the norm up until about maybe 15, 10 or 15 years ago, really, where you just target people based on where they are rather than targeting specific humans all the way around the internet. So what you're saying is if I go to one of your websites or your page, I'm not going to be viewing another blog somewhere and see an ad that I saw on your site. Or maybe I hop on Amazon one day and then the next day I go to your site. I'm probably not going to see ads for the product that I was looking at. Is that what you're saying? Correct. I'm sure we can both talk at length about retargeting and lookalike audiences and all these other terms of art. But yeah, no, that is exactly nothing about the ad that you're seeing on any ethical ads website is dependent on who you are or your browsing history. Do you think that's scalable? Is it long-term feasible? to keep holding on to that early 90s style newspaper advertising? I hope so. I mean, we've certainly seen good results. And I really think that kind of that's a lot of the narrative that kind of these folks are saying with, you know, any brand you can name was built with these advertising technologies. <laughs> like Coca-Cola, they didn't like come into existence by, you know, targeting you around. And <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think there are arguably benefits. You know, there's a reason people are using this invasive targeting But I think our argument is that the costs are much higher. And a lot of those costs are external. It's not just the fact that these ads are tracking you around the internet. It's also that there's the huge repository of data about you within these private companies. And there's lots of negative externalities. And so I think the thing that I come back to here is just enough. Advertising this way works well enough. Making money this way works well enough. You know, we could put more ads per page. We could do all these different things that could increase revenue or all these terrible technologies we can use. We could do pop-unders or whatever. 
at some point there needs to be a, a balance and you need to decide as an industry that this is enough of a solution and it works well enough. And I think that's where we've come down is that this works really well. And that's all that we need in order to kind of build a successful business. I'm kind of curious. So Eric in the chat, which I know guests can't read, so I'm just going to copy it, wrote unethical advertising is called advertising, which I think is, is pretty funny. I wonder, Eric Culture, if you have an opinion on what I'm about to say, which is probably not what I believe. But in the current market, what we have is mindshare is the most important thing. Where you spend your time is really important. It's important to advertisers, but it's also important to users because my day is finite. I can't afford to look at stuff. You said earlier that Coca-Cola hasn't targeted people for the past you know, 500 years that it's been around, whatever the date actually is. But they did target people. They target young kids by showing how cool it is to drink Coca-Cola. They target suburban housewives by showing them, you know, pulling a Coke out of the fridge in the 50s, which that example is really weird, but I'm sorry for bringing that up. But like they, they do target. They just don't target individuals like we do now. I agree that, you know, what we're doing now is way worse. But advertising itself to me seems like trying to sell people on things when really they should be just Buddhist and not need stuff. So how do you deal with advertising itself being unethical. I still don't love the idea of advertising. I think if there was a better solution, we would have chosen it. But I really think that this is kind of a a straw man in some ways, or I don't know the exact terminology, but it's like, yes, it would be great if advertising didn't exist, but then a whole class of things in the world wouldn't exist. And like, I want to have the trade-off where we have advertising in the things that I like. (laughs) you know, similar to, you know, newspapers and all these other things that are historically heavily dependent on advertising. I mean, every major online social network, like, I mean, there's all these things that have arguable value in the world, but it's just a whole, there's classes of, of things in the world that just don't exist without advertising. And similarly, you know, publishing in the open source industry is probably one of those things, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we tried, I've read the blog post on this maybe right when we were launching advertising and kind of enumerating the ways we tried to build a sustainable business that was not advertising, right? We tried, you know, support contracts and we tried consulting and we tried, you know, it's kind of like the laundry list of like sustaining things that people do. And none of them kind of mapped. They're all basically side projects to what we actually want to provide. Like we want to build and host documentation for the open source community and like selling support contracts for your custom read the docs install doesn't help anyone. You know, that helps a company and it's just a huge distraction. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is what maps to our set of incentives. The people reading the documentation pay with small amounts of their attention. We create an advertising, it's kind of an agreement, if you will, with the user and with the advertiser that we're going to show them ads that are relevant and we're not going to track them across the internet. And that's the set of trade offs that we've made. We're not selling Coke ads on Read the Docs. It's all, you know, developer focused products. And so we are kind of, there's a filter, right? And I think a lot of the, if someone came in and was doing something creepy with advertising by targeting subsets of our population, you know, we probably wouldn't run those ads. Uh, So I do think the content and the ads that we choose to show to your point (laughs) is definitely part of that, uh, part of that ethicalness, I guess, or at least part of the model. Do you think ethical advertising can be particularly useful for the sustainability of other open source work and projects? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of where Eric Berry and Justin and myself kind of come into the the story, which is kind of extending that model. 
into an ad network. And so that was something that CodeFund really pioneered. And that's something that we kind of took the mantle on in the current context. But yeah, I do think that, you know, that's kind of the the next goal, right? Like we proved with Read the Docs that this is sustainable for us and we're larger than any other project that we host at the moment on the ad network. I mean, Read the Docs is very large. It's a lot easier for us. You know, we can support a team of, you know, basically three or four people just from the advertising revenue. But yeah, that's really the goal is that expanding ethical ads into a network and then kind of offering that to other open source projects. And so there are a, a decent number of projects that I think the it's actually more normal now to have kind of ads on your documentation as a large open source project than to not do that. And so I do think a lot of that is the work that we pioneered that kind of CodeFund pioneered. And yeah, I think there's a lot of momentum. And I think, you know, the larger projects definitely can get closer to sustainability with it. That's certainly not great for small projects. So I do think there's a trade-off there. You know, advertising is in some ways a linear scale business. <laughs> you know, the more users, the more traffic you have, the more money you make. And so it is kind of a tricky way to kind of scale up open source, but I do think it's an important thing to have in our kind of tool set. How long ago was it when ethicalads.io launched? July. Yeah. So July. it's been almost, God. I guess once this airs, it'll have been about six months. Wow. Time yeah. flies. <laughs> well, um, 2020 is a time vortex. So. <laughs> so what's like been the biggest challenge since launching that where you're not just dealing with read the docs, but you're dealing with other projects? Like what are the things that come up the most that you're finding challenging and finding solutions to? I think the big thing is that we had a pretty robust advertising sales and marketing kind of like, you know, we'd been selling to advertisers for a long time but we'd never sold to publishers. And so that was an entirely new kind of skill set that we had to learn. It's an entire new business. It's an entire new, you know, we have to figure out how to pay people money. Historically, we were the only ones that had any incentive to engage in fraud. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, I do think that's one of the big kind of complications of, you know, the ethical ads approach is that it's completely on us to prevent fraud. Some of the third-party JavaScript on the internet is to track you around advertising, but some of it is also to prevent fraud. And so there is that element of it where we're kind of taking on that responsibility around fraud, which I think is going to be, you know, once you have other people you're paying, they also have, you know, an incentive to uh, defraud you. <laughs> and so that's been one of the big kind of mental shifts where we were previously the only customer. And so now we have to figure out how to pay people. We have to figure out how those incentives work. We have to, you know, also kind of balance the market, right? If we bring on a new big publisher, oh, yeah. Eric and I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you bring on a new big publisher, or a new open source project, you know, and you don't have enough ads sold, everyone loses money <laughs> and they Fall get mad back. at you. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. And so it's, it's this kind of like laddering complexity. Yeah. Which I'm sure you all could, uh, we could talk at length about if that was the, the topic of the podcast, but yeah, I think that was the biggest, biggest difference is that kind of adding a second side to the market, right? Historically, we were the publisher and we sold ads. And now we have kind of two sides that we have to balance. I think it's interesting that you started in 2020, considering like, again, it, the economic recession and that a lot of like industries that rely on advertising have had to contract. And I'm wondering what was the need what has this work looked like, you know, for 2020 and like in the current, like, you know, economics that we're living in? Well, I mean, I think the the big thing is that 
code fund had to shut down because of the economics that you're, <laughs> that you're talking about. I mean, I know that we saw more than a 50% drop in our ad revenue on read the docs in April. I'm sure they saw similar. <laughs> and so, no, I do think that it, we kind of were able to, we have other sources of revenue we do have kind of a paid subscription product on read the docs. And so in some ways we were, we're kind of a more diversified company. And so it didn't hit us quite as, as hard there. And then, yeah, really it was kind of code fund shutting down and, you know, we've known Eric and Justin and the team there for a long time. And we really wanted to kind of provide a soft landing for those publishers. You know, we didn't want to just be like, Hey, you have no revenue and you have no, you know, ad network that doesn't track you. <laughs> and so that was really kind of the, the reason that we got started. And then, yeah, I mean, I think from there, we've actually been reasonably happy with the growth. I mean, we're still a fraction of the size uh, that code fund was prior. So, I mean, we're a lot more insulated from the market, I think. But yeah, I think we're kind of slowly building back up. And, uh, you know, I do believe that a lot of good things are started in downturns because once the kind of market turns around, then you're positioned, you've already built the brand, you're kind of ready to go and kind of ride that growth. And so I think we're happy to kind of stay relatively small and kind of just, you know, provide the value to the folks who need it. So, yeah. Just to give the listeners a behind the scenes during the process of CodeFund shutting down, we let them know probably two weeks or three weeks before we shut down. And it wasn't really a serious thing until about a week and a half before. And you and David Fisher, just you guys became like a whirlwind of productivity to create what you did in order to take over our publisher pool. And so I've been super impressed by both you and David. And it can't be understated, like, thank you for what you've done, not only for pioneering ethical advertising, but also for keeping the code fund dream alive. It's very near and dear to my heart. And to know that it's in such good hands is just fantastic for me. Oh, you're going you're gonna to make me cry on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I'm curious about is You've talked about lots of publishers. You've talked about a really awesome ad network that you have. You've talked about ads being shown to developers. Have any maintainers been able to support themselves through putting ads on their docs? I mean, there are definitely projects that are supporting multiple people with advertising. I mean, read the docs is one. Ethical ads, I don't think any of the projects we're supporting currently are like the full-time revenue of a project unless we're a percentage of their revenue. Uh, so I know... Like Material UI is one, uh, which is huge, and they make a pretty good amount of money on advertising, and they're definitely supporting you know multiple people from that money. One that I know is on carbon ads, I believe, is Bootstrap, but I mean I'm sure they're making enough to to substantially support a team of multiple people. But yeah, I mean I think at the end of the day, it is you know you need somewhere in the probably five to ten million impressions a month to really kind of support a person or two you know, within this industry. And I mean, that's a huge amount of traffic. So unless you're, you know, Django or Python or Rails or, you know, Bootstrap or, you know, the top tier brand name in the industry, it's going to be pretty tricky as a sole source of revenue. But one of the things that actually Eric Berry and I have talked about and I've seen work is more of a sponsorship model. And it's something that we're kind of experimenting with hopefully in the future. So in the Python world, Django REST framework has done this successfully where basically they're, it's more of a model where you're paying for development. And so the pitch isn't, you know, buy ads to promote your product. And that's like the only engagement. It's buy ads to support 
the development of this thing that is used by your development team internally. So their pitch is more like you can pay $50 to $500 a month and get a full-time developer working on this tool that you use every day. So Django REST framework or these kind of like internal tools is similar to what Tidelift is doing, but in a kind of smaller scale. And I think that's something that that would be kind of a really interesting for us to be able to sell that set of tools to maintainers. So it's like, hey, you know, Tom at REST Framework or, you know, some other Python projects that I've thought about are Flask or Celery or some of these huge kind of projects in the ecosystem. If we were able to come in and say, you know, we're going to do the ad backend, we're going to work on the ad sales and the sponsorship. All you have to do is write code and like do a, like a monthly update. It's like, here's the roadmap, here's what we did this month, here's the kind of proof of work for the money coming in. That's one of the things that we view as kind of the next step towards making this more sustainable because at a commodity advertising rate, you need a ton of traffic to be sustainable. But if you really pitch it as paying for a developer collectively, it becomes a a much better value proposition, I guess, is what I'll say. You had brought up ad sales. I've been wondering about that. Like, What does ad sales look like when... It's ethical. I mean, very similar, except saying no a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> yeah. But can't you just slip it into this one ad? It's, uh, that's all we want, just one. But it, it kind of lends itself like, I mean, there's a certain amount of literacy around what is ethics like in this space. And I'm sure it's something that you've had to learn and refine and yeah, to be perfectly honest, we don't promote ethical advertising to advertisers. To them, this is a net negative. The main value is to users and publishers. So two sides of the market see a ton of value in it. For advertisers, I think there can be some value in, you know, brand affinity or being associated with being a good player in the market, but like at the end of the day, we're saying, you know, you can have less data and you have to use a different set of tools than you're used to using. And so a lot of it is as we scale up, and I'm sure Eric can, can talk to this, or Eric Berry, sorry, I realize that's ambiguous with two Eric's. But yeah, like I think that's going to be one of the challenges is, you know, at a certain scale, a lot of these companies standardize on tools that do tracking for, you know, fraud and accountability and data collection. You know, it's not all super creepy stuff. There is some value in the ability to run code across every place you're putting an ad. But yeah, I think that's going to be one of the trade-offs to selling, you know, larger customers is we have to kind of be like, you have to use a different set of tools. You know, we can give you data, we can give you a CSV export of each day or whatever, you know, we're, we can give you aggregated data, but it's not automatically in the tool that you're using, like Google Analytics or Google Tag Manager or whatever kind of advertising and marketing tool. So that's, yeah, that is a huge barrier within the sales process, I'd say. But yeah, at the end of the day, selling ethical ads just means saying no a lot and kind of telling people that they have to, you know, we're special and we're a snowflake and you have to, you know, we're annoying for you basically at the end of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Eric, this is super fascinating and it's really great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. For our listeners who are curious about following your journey and reading more about what you talk about and ethicalads.io and the like, where can they find you or content that you particularly want to highlight or read the docs? Sure. Yes. Yeah, so with Ethical Ads, we do have a, a monthly newsletter. I know Code funded a weekly newsletter somehow, but just I'm doing a monthly one. Justin's a guy. Justin, I don't know how Justin does it. Stop it, you. 
Uh, but yes, we're, we're currently at monthly because, you know, we're just mortal. <laughs> and so that's probably the best place to track kind of the ad side. On the Read the Doc side, we're terrible at marketing and I don't even really know the answer to that question. We do have a newsletter, which, you know, we have a blog. Uh, so that's really probably the best option. And we're trying to get to a quarterly newsletter there. So, you know, baby steps. <laughs> but yeah, those and write the docs. Similarly, you can just kind of Google all of these very similarly named documentation things or just find me and you can find everything through me as well. So. Where can people find you? Probably the best place is on Twitter, just Airculture or Airculture.com. My last name's weird enough. You can just Google me and I'm easy to find. That's Holcher, H-O-L-S-C-H-E-R. And now is the time for Spotlight, where we talk about really cool things that have helped us out before that have gotten to where we are or just projects that need some love. Eric Berry, what's your Spotlight today? Well, my Spotlight's not really a a product or anything. I think what I want to bring up, especially on this podcast, is the importance of simplifying your life. CodeFund really drove me towards an early grave. It was a extremely difficult product to run, extremely difficult network to build. And it was highly emotional when we shut it down. However, since shutting it down, since taking a nine to five job and really simplifying my life, I've removed myself from other responsibilities and just really focused on me and my family. And my quality of life has changed to such an amazing degree. And so I guess I'm just going to pick or spotlight simplifying your life. It's definitely worth it, except for you, Eric, because you're too busy. Yeah, I, th- I felt some shade there. <laughs> Simplify. Take all of your stress and dump it on Eric. That's my pick. Yes. Love it. Awesome. That really reminds me of Walden and Thoreau. He does just say simplify, which is great. Justin Dorfman, what's your spotlight? I agree with Eric, but. My spotlight today is my new watch, the Versa 3. I've had a Fitbit since day one. It came out and now I have the latest and greatest and I can shut off all my lights from my watch. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. So the opposite of Simplify. Thank you. Alyssa Wright, what's your spotlight? Well, I'm sure that there's some open source somewhere in this, but I found this Twitter account this week called cats where they shouldn't be. Uh, link in the show notes. It has created a lot of joy in my life during a time that I'm sure for many is stressful and dark in the winter months. So please add your own pictures of cats. I've heard there's going to be a cat in the White House. Somehow that's related to open source. And yeah, check it out. Oh my God. I'm checking out. Wow. Right cat Snowplays on Twitter. Go to Cat I'm sending Snowplays. this to my sister immediately. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Alyssa. My spotlight today, we just heard a lot about it. It's actually Read the Docs and Eric Holscher, because you and Read the Docs community were actually some of the first clients for Maintainer Mountaineer. I branched out and tried to make a consultancy that would answer people's issues around four years ago. I'm still kind of convinced it's a horrible idea. Somehow I'm still alive, so I guess it's working. But one of the first clients who actually trusted me enough to help me like close issues was read the docs. And I'm still so incredibly grateful that I just want to point out that all of their stuff is open source. You can go change readthedocs.org today if your PR is accepted. And they're really welcoming awesome developers over there. So thank you so much to Eric and read the docs. Eric Holscher, what's your spotlight? Man, I didn't know I was going to get such a love fest here today. This is very... Sorry, it's our MO. How we roll. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess I will kind of pay that forward in mind because I just do too many things. I was also on the Python Software Foundation board for a few years, and I was actually lucky enough to exit right before COVID cratered PyCon, which if you don't know about how the PSF is funded, the majority of their revenue comes through PyCon. And so not being able to do that last year was a huge hit to the PSF, which is, I guess the, the way that I explain the PSF is when you think about, you know, Java or .NET, you think, oh, those are owned by these massive corporations. But when you think about Python is actually owned by a nonprofit and it's governed by the community of Python developers. And so it's a really powerful thing. But the nonprofit behind it, the PSF, is super important and they make so much of their money from PyCon. And so I've gotten so much from PyCon over the years. A lot of my connections, a lot of Read the Docs kind of has grown through PyCon and the Python community. And so they're actually doing a fundraiser right now to kind of make up for, let me say, you know, a tenth of the money that, <laughs> that they lost from PyCon. And so I just wanted to kind of highlight the very important work that these nonprofit foundations are doing kind of behind the scenes. And if you have any budget left and you're giving December, I think the PSF is a worthy place to put it. So I guess that's my call out because it's done a lot of good in the world and a lot of good for me personally. Big call out. Thank you so much. They worked really hard over there. All right, Eric, it was excellent to have you on. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I hope our listeners learn something new and go out and get some ads on your platform that are ethical. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. It's a good caveat. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, y'all. Thank y'all. <laughs>